Heavenly Father, thank you for the opportunity to gather, to open up the Scriptures, to pray with one another, and Lord, to seek you that you might work graciously in our lives. We need you. We need your help. We need your intervention. And Lord, we pray that as we open up the Scriptures, our minds would be renewed and our hearts strengthened and that we'd be given joy and hope as we look forward to your return. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, 2 Corinthians 1 and verse um, verse 11 says, You also joining in helping us through your prayers, that thanks be may be given by many persons on our behalf for the favor bestowed on us through the prayers of many. The word favor in the Greek is charisma, uh, which we often use for the word gift. Okay, so it talks about an impartation or a blessing that um, comes because of Paul's uh, the prayer that they'd given for him, and evidently he'd been delivered from a some sort of a very dangerous situation. As I said earlier, we don't know specifically which one that was because it's not recorded in Acts, whatever exactly it was. But later in Second Corinthians, there'll be a list of perils, uh, several of them beatings and shipwrecks and perils that Paul went through. So, so there were many more of them even than what we know about from the book of Acts. Um, the, the many here in uh, verse 11, the thanks may be given by the many, evidently most of the people actually did support Paul in Corinth, but he had a few notable enemies that were stirring up the the church and causing him great distress and but the most of them were supporting him but this is a very difficult situation and in second corinthians one of the things we'll see over and over again is paul's kind of burying his heart he's telling what he's been through his his feelings for them the the difficulties the distresses and because of that because he has some what of a tenuous relationship with this church paul ends up um, in this particular book, telling a lot of personal details and also sharing his understanding of what it means to be in the ministry. And I think that's one of the reasons I'm interested in, in studying this book is that it helps equip us also for the ministry because it tells us what's important and what's not important as we're in the ministry. Now, one of the things that's very important is prayer. So, um, the literally says, working together with. So as they pray for Paul, he says they are working together with him. Paul obviously believes that prayer is important, and he believes that it's effectual, and that it should be a central part of our lives. So it is an important thing to pray for one another, and it's important to pray for those who labor in the Word, uh, whether it be missionaries or elders or whoever is uh, responsible for bringing the Word of God to the flock ought to be prayed for because if there's anything that is the target of Satan, it's an attack against the Gospel itself. I mean, Satan's thing that he hates the most is the Gospel and God using it to deliver people. So the attacks will always come against the Gospel. and Sometimes they're head-on, forthright attacks like what Paul had, 
wherever he went, he was under direct attack because he was faithful in the gospel. And Satan couldn't get him to quit preaching the gospel by uh, deceiving him or tricking him, so he sent people to try to kill Paul or to stop him that way. But I think in America today, the greatest attack against the gospel is not frontal assault uh, against true gospel preaching. Uh, it's more a, uh, an attack of deception and delusion to get people to not preach the gospel, but yet think they really are. Amen. That's probably uh, a pretty good tactic here in America where we have religious freedom and we have the right to our belief and we have the right to free speech. And so it's harder for Satan to get, you know, stir up people to actually stop us because we're allowed to preach the gospel. We can do it on the air. We can do it anywhere we want. But isn't it amazing how he's gotten the gospel silenced in America? Yeah. He's gotten it silenced through his deception and delusion by uh, making people think that the gospel is something that it really isn't and not knowing the terms. Uh, several of you have reported this to me, and, and that is that having talked to various pastors and been in various churches, when you ask the pastor about preaching the gospel, they all think they're doing it. Is that accurate? Yes. And how can you think you're preaching the gospel, and, but you really aren't? I don't have my helper today. I think one of the things that, uh, from your comment, one of the things that I've experienced going to different churches from time to time is people will use the term gospel when they might want to use the term biblical, talking about this is a biblical teaching. They say, well, this is the gospel teaching or this is the gospel truth. And they think if it comes from the Bible, it's the gospel. And there's a lot of things in the in the Bible that don't relate directly to the gospel but are very biblical in nature. So, Okay, so you would be saying... Uh, take gleaning various teachings that would be true, but they aren't directly related to the terms of salvation. Okay? And sometimes maybe it's, it's even a little further removed than that. I remember one instance, um, I had a friend who was going to a Bible church that converted to a seeker church, and it's now the biggest church attendance-wise in Minnesota. They had 350 when they were a Bible gospel church, and now that they're uh, pushed that aside, they've got like 8,000 people coming. Well, before, while they were in the midst of this conversion, my friend that was going there was fighting it and fighting the pastor uh, who was watering down the messages. And he called me about it. And I said, well, give me, I'd like to know specifically. So he got a tape uh, of, the ser- of uh, several sermons and he got a bulletin, and so on. There's Robert. <laughs> We've all been waiting for you, so there's no way. You can't sneak in. <laughs> I tried. <laughs> you get, you <laughs> Anyhow, um, so just to help me understand, now this was 10 years ago, or almost, yeah, probably in the 90s, before things had gotten, I mean, this guy was kind of an innovator. Now it's like every church is doing this. Well, let me give you an example. They had, uh, the pastor was gone, so they brought in a psychologist to do a marriage seminar for their Sunday morning service. And the, um, 
they got a, the, 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 he sent me the bulletin. And they have Bible, a Bible verse in a bulletin for the for sermon. It wasn't a sermon, it was a seminar on having a better marriage. And the Bible verse was, I have come that they have life and life more abundantly. From John 10. Okay? Well, so, um, they, they thought that teaching people how to have a better marriage was the abundant life. But that's not what that verse means. Jesus is talking about salvation. So do you see how they, how the gospel got pushed? If you look at John 10, in the context, John 10 is about Jesus is the good shepherd. He's the door of the sheep. He, he brings them into the sheepfold. He guards them from the wolves. And my sheep hear my voice doesn't mean you get specific guidance. It means you respond to the gospel. So you, and so the abundant life is the life you have when you repent and believe the gospel. It's not because you have a, you might get a worse marriage, um, when you become a Christian. You never know because sometimes the gospel divides families. So that's why, that, that's illustrating what you were saying. So they'd say, well, sure, we're preaching the gospel. We got, we got a Bible verse every Sunday. But there's really nothing in there that has anything to do with the terms of salvation. Okay, Keith and then Brian. I think. Hello? Yeah, it is. I think what, what I've seen, I just got, I had to, we visited a church because of a family event last weekend. And the people say there's all kinds of scripture that's being quoted. But really what the core issue in the gospel message and the gospel being preached is what is my problem and what is the solution? If my problem is bad marriages and we have the good one, that's one thing. If my problem is sin and facing the wrath of God and I need a Savior, that's a different one. And I have all kinds of verses. We heard our problem last weekend when we were there. We heard the problem was that we don't have God's blessing upon us and we need to have God's blessing upon us so Minnesota can have more corn and other things that, that, that come. And we could have blessings in our jobs and blessings here. So our problem is a lack of blessing, and here's how you get it. And the, the definition of the problem and the definition of the solution is really what the core gospel issue is. Right. What's the problem? What's the solution? I think for a lot of people, they, they don't understand the terminology. Now, if you'd asked me when I went to Wooddale all those years whether they were preaching the gospel, I would say yes. And I could point to that for like seven or eight weeks, he, he did a series on First Peter. But now that I look back, it was using the themes of First Peter to talk about life application. But if you'd asked me at the time, I would have said, well, look at it. You did a whole series on First Peter. There you are. But that's not really, you know, talking about what's important is addressing sin and how it can be resolved. The other thing, when you talk about the, the phrase, does your pastor proclaim the gospel? I didn't know what that meant. I didn't know it was to identify the person and work of Christ so that a new person would understand how salvation comes to them. So most, when they say, I'll say, well, does your pastor proclaim the gospel? Oh, yeah, he just finished a whole series on First Peter. See, they don't understand what that phrase means. So when you, you talk to people, well, is your church you know, proclaiming the gospel or teaching the gospel, most people will say yes because they truly haven't heard the type of teaching that we get here. I didn't really understand it until I came here. One follow-up question would get to the heart of the matter. Yeah, perhaps, but it depends on how much they understand what the gospel is. They may have never heard it. Hold on a second. Pause.
Oh. I got this wired wrong. <laughs> okay, now let's try again here. Checking, test, test, there test. Go. There we go. All right. I knew there was something. See, I got here. Normally I get here and I get this all set up, but today the sound system was disassembled upstairs when I got here, so I had to go up and build a sound system. Well, I had a friend that came here, and she only came once, but she said, well, this doesn't remind me of church. This is like a, a big Bible study. That's <laughs> <laughs> this doesn't remind me of church. This is like a Bible I said, study. Exactly. <laughs> oh, brother. <laughs> okay, well, that's, but there's a, what I appreciate is that there's a kind of a counter movement that's arising, and it's mostly on the internet and on the radio right now, and uh, people like MacArthur, um, uh, Muller from the seminary in Kentucky, uh, I really appreciate Todd Friel and uh, Ray Comfort, because that's their whole ministry is identifying what the gospel is and how it ought to be preached and what the man's problem is and what God's solution is. So these people are very vocal and are bringing this message out in front of the church in any way they can to try to. So and a lot of people are starting to respond to it because they uh, are saying, "I didn't even know." Oh, well, like what you were just saying, Brian, if you never heard anything but what's typically spoken. Uh, and, and this this has been going on for uh, slowly happening for like 40 years, and it's just gotten worse. But if all you know is sort of this Christianity light, when somebody like um, Ray Comfort or Todd Friel comes along and starts saying, "No, this is what it's all about," it seems shocking. It's like you know, he off- uh, uh, they offend people. You know, how can you uh, how can you say this? Well, just open the Bible. Okay, I have to say another one is uh, James Montgomery Boyce. Even though he passed away in, what, 2000, 2001, you can yeah. still find his MP3s out on the Internet. And he has some great lectures out there. And if you haven't read that book, Whatever Happened to the Gospel of Grace, I highly recommend it. Yes. It's very good. <laughs> yeah, there's a, there's a couple things in the last chapter that we disagree with, but I, we don't know who wrote that last chapter, I guess. But anyhow, uh, the gospel is an important issue that, um, you know, it's like you put, I remember in the early 80s when I had the same problem, I wasn't seeing clearly what the gospel was very well. And most of my preaching was about better living or doing, you know, something different in your life. Um, I remember that when I, it was about 86 when I lectured through Romans for the first time, that the light went on in my mind about what the gospel was, okay, and the centrality of the gospel. And suddenly I saw it everywhere as I read the Bible. I think what was going on, like Philippians, it's continually in Philippians. And I think what I was doing before was when I read Philippians, I'd see the word gospel and just keep skipping, you know, okay, yeah, I know, okay, oh yeah, I know, okay. And then I'd get to something interesting, like Paul would be talking about giving or he'd be talking about... um, Christ and his uh, emptying himself. And, you know, I found interest in there. But I, but the gospel part just kind of like, oh, yeah, okay, yeah, okay, yeah. Because I think what we start thinking is all that is is this little t- in, tiny thing that happens when you first become a Christian. And once you, quote, accepted Jesus, which was our old terminology, 
then that's all resolved. And so, therefore, every time you see the word gospel in the Bible, don't worry about it. You've already done that. Now go find something new. Find something to go on from. But what I didn't realize was the centrality of the gospel for Christians for the rest of their life, Amen. and that that's what Paul is talking about. It was, it's, it, the word's in there because the concept's important. It isn't just kind of accidentally in the Bible hundreds of times. Yes. And I think it gets back to what the problem is. I was saved to the gospel, but I promise you, my current problem is still sin. <laughs> and it's still the sin that afflicts me and the sin that I, I'm tempted with and the sin that I, I, I struggle through because this, the problem of sin won't utterly be resolved or thoroughly be resolved until I die. And the gospel was the answer and it continues to be the answer the whole time. And if I take my eye off the ball and look at these other things, I still have lots of problems. Yeah, you know, I think Romans, I, I'm thinking about... I'm going to lecture, starting Monday, by the way, I'm flying to Arkansas, and I'm going to lecture through the first eight chapters of Romans for a, a little Bible college. Okay? So I'm, uh, you can pray for me as I'm going to Arkansas for the first time in my life. The state of Bill Clinton. <laughs> anyhow, uh, I don't know what that means. But anyhow, um, I was thinking, I got found my notes. I don't have time to totally re- study Romans. I just have to go on. I've taught through Romans four or five times in my life and we did a radio series on it. But I got my notes out because I'm going to have to use my old notes. And I was reading through them and I was thinking, like what you were just saying, Keith, if you think about Romans, so much of it really is about that we have this sin problem, but we still have assurance of glorification. So you have, if you take Romans, you got the first two and a half chapters of Romans Romans, two and a half chapters until the end of chapter three, all about universal sin nature and sin on the right and sin on the left and uh, people that have sinned against their conscience. The Jews sinned against the law they gave. Uh, the Gentiles sinned even though they didn't have the law. And then in Romans three, there's this whole litany. Uh, the none seek after God, none do a good. It's just bad, 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 bad for, for almost three chapters. And then comes the gospel, all right, and the blood atonement. At the end of chapter three, there's fabulous uh, theology about propitiation, which means satisfying God's wrath against sin in Romans three. Then Romans four, justification by faith, because using Abraham as an example, Romans five is the Adam Christ analogy. In Adam, all sin, but in Christ, all are made alive who come to Christ, that is. So then you have the forensic ground of justification laid out, the legal ground that is, the imputation of Christ's righteousness in Romans 5. Then in Romans 6 it comes to the practical implications of that reality that we've died to sin and come alive to God, therefore do not let sin reign in your members. So there's this admonition to taking sanctification seriously in Romans 6. And then, okay, so we're already six chapters in. Now we're in Romans 7. And Paul's lamenting his sinfulness. Right? Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me out of the body of this death? So we have legal justification. We have the imputation of Christ's righteousness. We've been baptized, buried the old man, come alive. Sin doesn't have to reign in us. And where I end up is wretched man that I am. Like you were saying, Keith, it's still an issue. You're still dealing with it. And then the, the, the capstone of the, that section of Romans in Romans 8, when we did it in the radio, we spent four radio shows to go through Romans 8. By the way, it's on, on the web now. 
You can hear the Romans radio series on the TCF website under Bible study. We're, st- we're starting to do that Bible study thing. But in Romans 8, then you have the fact that because the Holy Spirit indwells every believer, He is carrying us, ago, Greek word, He's carrying us to glory. And all who are justified will be glorified. And what can separate us from the love of God? Neither height nor death, or principalities and powers. So, what a, so studying just the first eight chapters of Romans, well, then by the way, Romans 9, 10, and 11 take the same issue, sin and salvation, apply it to Israel. So at the end of Romans 8, you have all the elect being glorified. And in the end of Romans 11, you have all of Israel being saved. He had the same kind of theme of salvation, only now applied to Israel, Romans 9, 10, 11, then 12 on as practical applications. So, how could, that's what changed me. Before I studied Romans verse by verse by verse by verse for three years, the gospel was just resting too lightly upon me. It had saved me, but I was spending 15 years of my Christian life trying to figure out better living. One way or another, deliverance and inner healing and then uh, other practical ways to solve problems and to get rid of your issues. And when the gospel came back central in my life through Romans, it's, it's never been the same. And I hope we could get that message out to the, to the rest of the church out there because our whole evangelical movement has kind of lost our focus and the passion for the gospel is just resting lightly upon us. And the reason for it is we're concerned. What the, the thing that, that pushes the gospel to the peripheral out here is concern about better living now. Whatever it might be. Better living, uh, solving problems, being happier. Okay, uh, uh, Luann. Well, I was just going to say, um, kind of agreeing with what Brian was saying, too, with topical messages. What I found for myself with, that became the problem is even though I had heard all the Christian terminology and I understood it, when it came time to defend my faith, it was so obscure and I couldn't put everything in the box. And I'm so thankful because now I can. it's all in the box for me and it's God's boundaries. And where some people will say, well, you can't put God in a box. No, he put us in a box and these are the boundaries for us. Amen. And it's just become so simple and Amen. clear. <laughs> That's, Luann, I love you. Yeah, Sam, did you want to say something? Uh, uh, yeah, I, I used that analogy in one of my articles about and, and he has put us in a box, but Jesus calls it a sheepfold. Okay? In John 10. In the, in the box that we're in, the sheepfold, has boundaries because of the wolves that are outside. Okay? And so people don't want to be in the box. They, they, they think they can convert with the wolves and not get bitten. That's literally what they think. I can just run around outside the, the boundaries, and because I'm sincere, the wolves aren't going to get me. Well, guess what? If you're a sheep, the wolf has the advantage if you go into their territory. Amen. <laughs> you will get bit, yes. Uh, I can attest to all sorts of uh, um, trying a better living through whatever means. Even, even when, I, uh, when I became a Christian, uh, I was looking for a better living as well through, through the messages from the Bible. But I also became thirsty for the Word of God, hungry for the Word of God. And as I look back over my life, the better living has come as a result of 
the Word of God, not anything else that any other any other word has come across my my experiences. Um, but that that aside, um, you, that's the only way you can live better. You know, absolutely. Uh, yeah. It comes as a byproduct, doesn't it? Exactly. And and another thing that about about preaching to the um, to the church, the gospel message. I always look for, I guess, look for the uh, uh, the keyword or the or the in a message, whatever the keyword. But in in this preaching the the, the message, I think that the sh- the leaders of the of the churches, the pastors, um, it almost seems like they're the ones that, that this gospel message is supposed to, is, should be being preached to first, because obviously there's a lot of preachers out there that do not know that. So. As, as leaders of the flocks, maybe they're the ones that should be approaching. I don't know if this could be another CIC article for you or not. <laughs> well, I wrote an article called The Demise of Gospel Preaching. That was years ago. And it hasn't gotten better. No, one pastor, I know, George Cable, we don't have any back issues because he's given away every one we had. We had like a hundred of them. And he said, send me 20 more, send me 50 more. So they were all gone. This, this is a guy who's in his 70s who's been a Baptist pastor since the 50s, and he is giving that article on the demise of gospel preaching to every pastor he can find. Yeah. Um, Probably time to revive it. Yeah, absolutely. We need a revival. Uh, Nicole, uh, if you want to run that back to Nicole. I had a quote here about Paul's prayers. Um, here, um, but Paul writes that we're talking about one, 2 Corinthians 1.11, but Paul writes this letter because the relationship with the church had gone through some rocky times. Besides the danger Paul faced in Asia, the growing rift between him and the Corinthians probably added to his feeling unbearably crushed. He makes it clear that he has given his life to a great and powerful God who supports and comforts him in all things, but he also needs them. It is equally true that they need him. If they earnestly join in praying for his deliverance, then they cannot disparage his suffering Joyously giving thanks to God for, for God's intervention in Paul's life becomes the surest sign of the reconciliation between them. See, what was going on was the, some of his critics in Corinth were using his suffering as proof that he wasn't really a good man of God. And, that, and so his afflictions became a stumbling block to them rather than a sign that God was at work. And so that's why in 2 Corinthians there's so much discussion about afflictions and what they mean because Paul has to defend that he's afflicted. And they, it's almost like somebody brought the health and wealth gospel back into the first century and tried to apply it then. And so then that Paul's in jail or afflicted or beaten or sick or wounded or whatever he is, is a proof that he's not from God. So he has to defend himself. Yes, Nicole. Uh, I just wanted to back up what you were saying about... Um the gospel falling too lightly on you. When I think back, coming out of Catholicism and and then going on in college, getting my degree in psychology and trying to psychologize Christianity and everything, what I learned deeply was that um, the enemy will try to use the gospel against the gospel if you don't go deep enough with it. If you don't go deeper in God's word, you get inoculated from it. It, it's it's almost like I mean I I don't mean to make a parallel with the gospel being a disease but if you if you don't want to get a disease you get vaccinated with the with it's a it. weak dose of and, it and the enemy does that with the gospel if he keeps you topical if he keeps you in theophastics or contemplative prayer and you're not really in the gospel though you're hearing 
subtleties from it, you're going to be inoculated from it. That's an interesting point. I think I've heard that analogy before. That, that what the weak or light gospel does is sort of like giving you a, a, a dose of something that inoculates you against the real one because you don't feel like you need it. Right, and then pretty soon you don't even know what it is anymore. Yes. Bob, I just wanted to give a, <clears throat> excuse me, a little comment on your Romans thing before we got too far from it. Okay. A simple um, summation of uh, what Bob just gave is if you go to the last two minutes of the entire series at the end of Romans 11. Yes. Remember that part? Yes. Uh, we said, Robert, you got two minutes, wrap up Romans. And he did that entire 11 things in two minutes, 11 chapters in two minutes. Cold turkey. <laughs> but it was really good, and it was a very well, nice wrap-up. Maybe I'm finally learning Romans here. <laughs> I think you got it down. Yeah, yeah. that's on the, the very last one. See, um, we're putting, we're, we're working uh, very hard on the website to make it more useful because we want people all around the world to be able to learn the Bible. So what we're doing is we're taking what's already been completed, whatever we can find decent recordings of, and putting them under Bible study book by book by book. So, you get, so we're going to have Romans, Galatians, Philippians, um, uh, Thessalonians, Genesis, and, uh, and then church history, and then hermeneutics. We want to, we, the next time we do it, we want to get that to put on the web and maybe put the, and have PDFs of the handouts so people can take the hermeneutics class on the web. And we want to create an on the, online Bible school. So that's our goal. Pray that we're working on it. And the first leg is up, which is Romans. So now anybody can listen to that Romans series that Dick and I did. And uh, I think that one turned out very well. I've, I've, felt, I've always felt really good about how that went. We just conversationally sat down in front of Mike and we walked our way through 11 chapters of Romans in, in 14 hours. That's what we did. Okay. Um, yes. I think talking about the gospel and how relevant it is for us today is very important. I I see the church, um, the seeker-sensitive church that's looking for something above and beyond or experiences beyond their salvation experience. And I think it's because they realize that there's still trials and tribulations in their lives. There's still sin in their lives. They've done the gospel. They've been through that, and then they've forgotten about it, and they want to find the magic the magic something that will improve their lives. Yeah. And what they need to do is get back to the gospel. That's, you know, uh, Dean, that's exactly what Theophostic does. When, when I wrote an article about Theophostic ministry, in the very first chapter of Ed Smith's book, he, he basically says that it doesn't work. In other words, prayer, Bible study, the things that Christians have done for centuries don't work. And that's precise, the means of grace. In fact, he lists all the means of grace, says none of these work. But guess what? Getting a secret revelation from Jesus about the interpretation of a first memory event does work. <laughs> okay, so now we, now we throw out everything that God's given us. Well, not throw it out. He wouldn't say, I'm not, I'm not throwing it out, he'd say. But just telling people it's not that relevant. It's just going to put it in a corner and don't worry about it. You can pray and read the Bible, but it won't solve your problems. But something else will. Yeah. And I think that gets back again to the core issue with sin. To the extent that I realize I'm a sinner, to the extent that I realize that that separates me from God and how bad it really is, and that God filled that gap with his own son 
his death and his blood, and how valuable that is, that's where the gratitude comes from, and that's where the power of the gospel comes from to, to change me. And if I don't understand my sin, I can't understand the gospel. It's right. impossible. If I, if I don't reconcile myself to the fact that I am, in God's sight, a miserable wretch, then being brought close to God through the blood of his Son is of no value because I think I'm already there. That's a good point. That's why Romans 7 and 8 are the way they are. Paul laments his wretchedness, and then Romans 8, on the heels of Romans 7, is the glorious answer. And you see how great the answer is because you understand how bad the problem is. Yes, sir. Uh, Real living. <laughs> no, Mike. Like a guy in the street, he had a necklace on him with John on it, some verse of John, which was gospel. But real living, if you want to talk about real living, if you were to die today, and you would be with Jesus. That's real living. There's no better living than that. To be with Jesus, to see him face to face, absent from the flesh, present with the Lord. It just said God has given us time to be, only reason he's given us time is to be about his business. So the gospel isn't the best kept secret in the world. Like I told that homeless man out there, you're not as bad as Lazarus, is that you don't have nothing to eat and sort. But yet he died that day and was with God. And the rich man was in Hades. And he said, let me come back and tell my five brothers about this place lest they come here. And Jesus Christ said, if some man died and rose from the dead and told this wicked world, including all these lying preachers, the gospel, they wouldn't believe. And these <laughs> preachers do not give the gospel. Yeah. They read it off of a sheet. They can read the gospel. But if they really were born again, like this priest said, when he got the gospel, he was reading, it came alive. The Holy Spirit is not dead. In you. It will come alive. They're liars. I've talked to them over and over again. In fact, I was at Augustana and a little preacher brought the gospel in there on a sheet of paper and he said, don't bring this in here. That's the Lutheran. Don't bring this in here. We don't want it. They don't give the gospel. I will say one thing for my priest when I got converted. I come back from Florida when an ex-atheist told me the gospel and became a preacher one thing like told me the gospel in front of 2,000 hippies. I come back to that priest and I said, Robert, why haven't you told me the gospel? And I won't tell you one thing about that priest. He looked me in the face and said, we don't. He says, I was brought up in Lutheran. They beat me over the head with the Bible, and I became a Catholic priest. We don't. Well, I want to tell you, I told him I'm going to tell everybody I can the gospel. And I think he got converted later on. Wow. But they don't yeah. tell the gospel. Yeah, they you really know. knew it. It is not the best kept secret. The apostles told the gospel. The disciples told the gospel. They would tell it. Yes. Well, you know, I did the same thing uh, when I got converted, Dan. I went back to the preacher in the liberal church, and I told him how I was converted by the gospel. And you know what he told me? He says, when I was a young man, I started out that way, but I found out it didn't work. And, and he said, the, the, the good, you just can't know. What he basically says is you can't know. Uh, all you have to do is trust that the good Lord is going to understand. 1 John 5.13, and you may know. Yeah, I know. So that, but I went right, that was my own, I went back to that church. But you know, the interesting thing, the interesting thing that happened, I was in a little Methodist church that had been taken over by liberalism because in the 50s, that's what the seminaries were turning out. In the Methodist seminary, it was turned out a lot of liberals. And it's not universally the case, but that's where it was. We had had liberals in our, as pastors, including that guy. And, but two weeks after I was converted, I had a dream that I was sitting in that little church 
And in the back where I always sat with my brother, and a young girl was up singing a gospel song, and the Holy Spirit was convicting the people in the church. And this was in my dream. And then I thought, well, I'm a Christian now. I know the gospel. These people don't even know. So I'm going to get up and tell them. So in my dream, I got up in front and started preaching the gospel in the church. Later, I providentially, that dream was what, through other circumstances, led me to go into the ministry. But here's an interesting thing that happened, though. In 1972, it was 71, I was converted. I had the dream in the summer of 71. In the summer of 72, we had a, a, a coffeehouse outreach. And I think I told the story. And the first one converted was my brother Wayne. And, and Diane and I were out passing out tracks, And Wayne's friends were mocking us. So Wayne thought, well, that's not right. And he followed us down into the coffeehouse and, and met Christ. Well, the Sunday before... Wayne was converted. My old Methodist church asked me to come and speak. So I literally, the dream was literally fulfilled in the sense that I I did preach the gospel in that church. That little Methodist church, I preached the gospel there and then my brother was converted within a week. Okay? And so... Um, God can use can use us, and Dan, I, I thank God that you go out on the streets and you tell people about Jesus Christ. And that's it. That's right, Dan. And and I, what you said, that homeless guy, is really the truth. You're, if you come to Jesus, you're better off homeless than being a rich man without Jesus in a mansion. Isn't that true? Amen. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Absolutely. So God bless you, Dan. Um, so we have some. We're talking about prayer here. Let's get back to our topic. Joining in prayer. So Paul, we're talking about things that they say don't work. Well, the means of grace, quote unquote, work because they're ordained by God. Yeah. Uh, yes, uh, Mike, back there to Ryan. Um, Ryan's written a couple books on this, so we, we'll ask him to tell us about it. But, but to say things like, well, I tried prayer, that doesn't work. I tried uh, studying the Bible, that doesn't work. I tried fellowship, that doesn't work. What you're basically saying is, God, everything you gave me doesn't work, so I'm going to go find something else. Well, that's just blatant unbelief. Yeah. Well, that's, that's and, what I was going to say, and, Bob. It, 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 yeah, you, when you ahead. think about how grieving that is, what you're, what the, the statement, it doesn't work, where you're, you're, you're sinning by Proclaiming the work of Christ is not sufficient for what we have. And think, the Lord sent His Son to die for us, to be raised from the dead, and now He is our ever-living great high priest, which has an indestructible life, and we are united by faith in Him. And you're saying that that doesn't work. And to really think about that, I mean, I don't think they understand their, I mean, the, the gravity of what they're saying. When they say it doesn't work, because these things, prayer, the scriptures, fellowship, and the Lord's Supper, all these things focus us on Christ and his finished work. That's what the, the, the means is there to bring us to Christ. And to say that doesn't work is, like you said, it's blatant unbelief and it's, it's sinful. It's, it's unbelief. Absolutely. And I think we kind of concluded that. That's like Brian and I, when we've gone and done these seminars, I remember the one we did, I, I had a little meeting with a pastor and I, he said, well, how do I answer the people? I said, well, what do they need? What do they say they need? 
Well, they say they need contemplative prayer and mysticism because otherwise they don't hear from God. Okay? Now, again, what we have is a failure of faith. And you also have some bad theology. Because you believe that what God, the only thing we know God said is what's in His Word, right? And so, if you're not hearing from God, you're not studying the Bible. Alright? But they don't look at it that way. They think that there's this third will of God that has to be discovered by personal revelation. And so then, believing they need God to tell them, uh, you know, if they're single, where they're going to find a husband or a wife, if they're out of work, which job they're going to get. They need this secret information. So then they go, and then they go into these things that God hasn't ordained. And, and the thing that He has ordained, like, like you're saying, well, we, so we have a high priest in heaven. Who cares? And that's bad. That's really bad. Wow. It's a neglect. Great. I think that would make a good sermon someday. <laughs> How shall we escape? We neglect such great salvation. Yes. I have a question on the prayer. Yes. Because what you just read in the quote, it seemed that the, the author of that quote that you read was focusing that the prayer that the Corinthians were praying for Paul was it evidence of being joined together with Paul in Paul's ministry? In his ministry, yes. And that Paul, well, here's my question, is, does that mean that the prayers themselves were not necessary to free Paul? Or, the, or his work, when he says being a part of that, was Paul's deliverance dependent upon their prayers? Well, it's, it's kind of a both end. It's like, the, remember uh, in the Acts when Peter... Wasn't Peter in prison? Who was Peter was in prison and they were praying for him? And then and then he came out and they couldn't believe it was him? They didn't believe he <laughs> So it obviously wasn't their great faith and they didn't believe Peter was going to get out. Well, you can't be Peter. You're in jail. We were just praying for you to get out. Well, uh, yeah, no, I am Peter. Okay, it, it's, it's somewhat of a mystery and, and Ryan can maybe address this as well, but notice it says in our passage, joining and helping us through our prayers. That thanks may be given by many persons on our behalf for the favor bestowed upon us. So yes, they participated with Paul and God used their prayers as part of his means of working in Paul's life. Now, can, what do we know about the converse? Can we say had they not prayed, then Paul would have died? Well, it doesn't say that. I don't know if you can assert the converse. But see, God sovereignly uses the means he ordains. It's like saying... Well, if I didn't preach the gospel, maybe nobody would be saved. Well, nobody would be saved through my ministry. But I believe that God is going to save who He's going to save. Amen. But I nevertheless, He has means, and His means is gospel preaching. So, it's the same kind of idea as prayer. Why would you not want to pray? Why would you not want to preach the gospel? Because if I preach the gospel, God uses it to convert people. And when He does... It brings great joy to me. Because it's a, how could God use me, uh, flawed as I am, was well, because of a great gospel. Okay? And so, uh, when we pray, when we share the gospel, and we obey God, we are participating with God because He's using means, and we get the joy and the benefit of seeing that happen. Of seeing people converted. So, um, 
that's just how it works. Now, well, it's, I mean, I suppose you could conceive of a universe in which nobody ever did preach the gospel and everybody in the world went to hell. But, but you know, my, my, it's not my, the universe we live in. I mean, my question was more, um, again, in the service I went to a week ago, the guy that was talking had set up all these prayer groups all around the country and they're doing 24-7. And he, apparently the one that he had been most established was somewhere in Missouri. And the Republicans even lost there. So he got down on his knees and repented that it didn't work. <laughs> oh, that, no. that it didn't work. And the whole concept of the prayer that they were working through... They didn't pray enough so that yeah, the Republicans lost? So it was, it was a, there's, there's links there that he was trying to establish. And I don't believe those links. I don't think they're yeah. scriptural. No. Here we kind of see a link. And I was wondering if by praying for Paul... It was more that I'm identifying with Paul and his message yeah, right. and his gospel and his ministry. Because I pray for him, his ministry is also effective in me. I yeah, that's, that was that's kind of what that quote said, that it, it was assigned to Paul. Uh, oh, one over there and then back here. It, says, it was assigned to Paul that they cared about him and they weren't rejecting him. You know, God would could, could use a lot of means to deliver Paul, but by the, using their prayers, it, it did them good. Because they're associating with the gospel itself. Yes. When when people say the prayers don't work, we have to look at what we're praying. Are we praying for abundance for my life? Are we praying for a new house? Are we praying for a new car? Or are we praying the prayers that the Bible gives us as examples? Paul in Ephesians prays some powerful, powerful prayers for the people. Mm -hmm. David prays powerful, powerful prayers. Mary in the magnificent... God, my soul doth magnify the Lord. What, you know, what is our focus? Is it on what I can get? What can I do? What, are we going to bind the spirit around the city? Are we going to glorify God in our prayers? That's a good point. There's still a lot of that going on. I got an email from somebody that sent me a, a guy's teaching. And this was from another country that was teaching binding of spirits over the city. So that rather than praying to God, you're actually praying to spirits, even if you're actually praying against them. Okay. Yeah, and building on that, uh, the, it, if you get back to the theology of what it means to pray in the name of Jesus, praying in the name of Jesus is not like a, a code for a cosmic vending machine to get whatever you want. <laughs> Pr- praying in the name of Jesus in the theology of the Gospels is that we are aligning ourselves with his name, which is representative of his character, his will, his purposes. So when, when we're praying in Jesus' name, when, when we say that, in your name, it's not, a again, like a code. It is, it's a responsibility to acknowledge that, okay, we are given the best that God has granted us in his wisdom. We are aligning ourselves with this Jewish Messiah and his words and his purposes. So praying in the name of Jesus, much like Diane was saying, is... Are we praying for what Christ wants? Are we praying for what God wants? So like the, the Lord's Prayer very much is praying in the name of Jesus because that's how he taught us to pray. So praying in the name of Christ is very pertinent to what we're talking about here because the more we learn of Christ and his purposes and his ways and his will, the more we will be in his name. The converse would be like those guys in Matthew 7 that said, Lord, Lord. Yeah. They were in, he says, in your name, we did all these things. Exactly. And he said, I didn't know you. So they were not 
really because it really it wasn't is, his name because it wasn't in alignment with who he is, his nature, his character, exactly. his will, his purposes. So we and, yeah. and the things we don't know, we submit them to him and his purposes and will and trust him in the midst of that. That's why it says in James, we ought to say, if the Lord will. Yep. And I have her- books in my heresy library that say that if you say, if it be thy will, that you're confessing your unbelief and you'll never get anything from God. Even though it specifically says that's what we should do in, in James. Okay. Yeah, it was uh, Hagen actually taught that. I, well, they all teach the same thing because it comes from one another. Uh, let's do a quick, some cross-references. We'll start over here where the mic is. Uh, Robert, uh, Romans 15, 30 to 32. Uh, Denise, Ephesians 6, 18 and 19. Linda, Colossians 4, 3. Keith, oh, you got a little Bible? Okay. Just because the Bible's little, the Word of God's still big, right? Uh, 2 Thessalonians 3, 1. <laughs> I have that little one I used too, because it's the only one I got today. Okay, uh, Romans 15, 30 to 32. Now I urge you, brethren, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, to strive together with me in your prayers to God for me, that I may be rescued from those who are disobedient in Judea, and that my service for Jerusalem may prove acceptable to the saints. That's the same thing as what we have here, right? That they would join in praying for his rescue. Ephesians 6, 18 and 19. Praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. And for me, that utterance may be given to me, that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel. Okay, that is an interesting prayer, and you find it several times. Just think about that. Paul, the great apostle, is asking for prayer that he'd be bold in the gospel preaching. And you might think, well, you know, that would be like praying that Dan, would, when he says his thing, would be say it loud enough for people to hear. <laughs> I know. Okay, absolutely. So, and now, that's so instructive, all right? Because I don't, the more you take the Bible literally, it really is a powerful thing. Like when Paul says, well, I'm chief of sinners, we think he's just using hyperbole because we consider him such a great guy. But Paul really felt he was a chief of sinner because he was trying to kill Christians. And and he never lost uh, that idea from his mind that God had been so merciful. How Because here he was blaspheming Christ, and Christ saved him instead of killed him on the road to Damascus, right? The same Christ that appeared to him and saved him could have cured, appeared to him and killed him because he would have deserved it. So he meant that. So when Paul says, pray for me that I might have boldness, he really meant that. Why? Because he was attacked continually. And, and, and the temptation is real. In other words, if Paul would just quit being bold in the gospel, he wouldn't have all these things happen to him. Now, the same thing. Do I have that in here? No, I don't have another one in Acts. Okay, I don't want to steal anybody's thunder here. The same thing can be seen in... Acts chapter 4, when persecution first broke out against the church. And the early church went into a prayer meeting. And in this particular case, the the Holy Spirit inspired Luke to record what they prayed. And they quoted scripture. Behold, the Gentiles rage and the peoples imagined vain things uh, against the Lord and against his anointed. Then they said, 
they prayed to the Lord and they said, Grant, uh, I have this memorized from the King James, grant thy bondservants boldness that we might proclaim your word. Okay? And so, that gives us a hint why Paul asked for prayer for boldness. Because the more you're under attack and your life is in jeopardy, the more the temptation to be quiet. Because all this will go away if you just quit being bold in the gospel. And the reason Peter and those were threatened is because they were bold in the gospel. And uh, so they prayed that they'd have more boldness. And so did Paul. And so <clears throat> I was at a meeting with a bunch of people working on this hands across the city. And this guy came and started, uh, oh, I don't know, he, he, he had some kind of bad theology and leave it to me. I mean, he was going on and on. No, we've got to, we got to get everybody together and we're going to get, uh, pray until we have a vision. And when we have this vision, God's going to save all the people in the city. And I said, no, I won't do it. We already know what the vision is. It's given in a Bible and it's called gospel preaching. And, and so then it kind of, well, disrupt. <laughs> oh, oh, oh. <laughs> yeah. And so then, I wrote an email to the guy in charge, a really nice guy, and I'm sure they're all sincere and they do want to reach people in the city. And I said, you know, why don't we let the Bible inform us about how we ought to pray? They didn't get together and pray for a vision. They got together and prayed for boldness. And I said, what we should pray for at our meeting is boldness to proclaim the gospel. Because the vision's already been given once for all. Okay, Keith, and then we'll pass it back to Linda. I was just for thinking for can bring an application to us. We're going to, God willing, be moving. And I do pray for the church and I pray for what we're doing here and that the message would get out. But I pray and lift up what's happening. And as we move, if we move, how all this stuff happens, it's the will of God being done. I can just pray and be confident that God's will is being done and go forward. That's kind of how I see it. Right. Pray that when we get there, we'll have boldness in the gospel. That, that that's what's more important. You know, another way to pray is: should it happen that if we move and we actually have a parking lot and bathrooms that aren't plugged, maybe a bunch of people would come. But then pray that that doesn't create a temptation to lack boldness. You know, because one one thing, if there's anything that deludes us, it's success. Absolutely, because it's hard to believe you're doing something wrong when you're successful. And I've uh, thankfully, I have never really been blessed with that. But, so, uh, but should it, should it ever happen, uh, uh, still, we have to pray that we don't lose our boldness in the gospel because we think uh, we're complacent or whatever. Just pray, pray. What we should pray for is boldness in the gospel. If Paul needed that prayer, let's do it this way, a lesser to greater argument, or greater to lesser, a good Jewish argument. If the great apostle Paul needed prayer for boldness, how much more do we need it? All right. Say something, Bob. You have been blessed with a kind of success that we've been looking for for many years. Well, thank you. Thank you. You know, I let me let me give you an example of why it's hard. When I started at the seminary, and I'm not just trying to always trash the seminary because they gave me a fabulous education. And I thank God for that, and I had some great teachers. But when I first started there. They had the finest evangelical teachers in the world. I'm not exaggerating. Top Old Testament person, top 
New Testament person, top everything. And, and those, in fact, when those people left, when the seminary changed in 95, they went over to Moeller's Seminary in Kentucky. Dr. Stein, Dr. Block, Dr. Schreiner, these are guys I'm talking about. Okay, but we were having meetings, and, and they were teaching the truth. They, were, they had, it was just like, some of the classes were like the road to Emmaus. But the seminary was losing $3 million a year. And, and we kept having meetings about, well, we don't know how much more we can raise your tuition, and this college has to subsidize us because they've got, uh, they're running into black, but we can't keep going on, and they didn't know what to do. Well, they brought in a new dean, and he, and he turned the, the, the whole thing around where they went from three million in the red to like 12 million in the black. But the way he did it was by bringing in a new master's degree called marriage and family therapy. And within a few years, half of the students basically were in that degree program. And so what that did was it was because the, the, the big mega churches that had gone secret sensitive weren't looking for theologians out of the seminary. They were looking for therapists. And so the demand wasn't for somebody trained under Dr. Block and Dr. Stein and Dr. Schreiner, who would be the finest theologians graduating from a seminary. The demand was for therapists. Because if you're in a secret church, the biggest ones in town, what do they need theologians for? Because they're not using theology even in the senior pastor's sermon. Why would they need it from a seminary graduate? Okay, so by meeting the demand, they went from three, millions in the red to millions in the black. And here I am, one of their students, going into the top dean and telling him he made a big mistake. That literally is what happened. And how do you tell somebody who's, who's just saved an institution from financial ruin that what he's doing is wrong? But I did, I did do that, but he can't hear it. See, the success makes it so that we can't hear certain things. All right, and, and sometimes it can ruin today's paper. Good example for, uh, and, and it can ruin really what we call good people. Today's paper had a story about a guy from the United Health um, who turned that thing around and made it one of the finest uh, uh, healthcare providers in the country, and from a struggling little thing to millions and millions and billions and billions. But now he's resigned in disgrace over stock stock options. But the story was saying everybody, this guy was a fabulous person. And, and he really had the admiration of all kinds of people and he's uh, given money away. But now he's disgraced because I think you start believing whatever you do must be blessed because it works. I don't know. I mean, so we have, we have to be careful about that. Okay, you've been very patient. Now, Ephesians 6, is it? Uh, Colossians, and I'm going to read two. Okay, Colossians 4. Okay, go ahead. I'll read two. Devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving, praying at the same time for us as well that God will open up to us a door for the word so that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ for which I have also been imprisoned, that I may make it clear in the way I ought to speak. Again, Paul's asking for prayer that he'd be a good gospel preacher and that he'd be clear. Why? Because the temptation is not to be because then you don't end up in prison. He was in prison because of the gospel. Okay, uh, 2 Thessalonians 3, 1. Finally, brethren, pray for us that the word of the Lord will spread rapidly and be glorified 
just as it did also with you, that we will be rescued from perverse and evil men, for not all have faith, but the Lord is faithful, and he will strengthen and protect you from the evil one. There you go. Again and again, pray for us. Pray that we'd be bold. Pray that we'd be clear. Pray that the word of God would go forth. So do that. Pray, pray, for, pray for the elders. Pray for Ryan, Carl, and I, that we would be bold in the gospel, that we wouldn't compromise the truth of the Bible, and that we'd remember that we're sinners and God's being very merciful to use us at all. Amen? We can all pray for that. Okay, God bless you, and Ryan's preaching from Ephesians today upstairs in a half hour. Bye.